Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Welcome to The Laws of Style, downloading to you from the offices of HBA. Hi, Bob Bryant Park in the Garment District of New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer, fashion law professor, and self-styled well-dressed man. And I'm here today with the founder of the footwear phenomenon, direct-to-consumer, vertically integrated brand, Greats, Ryan Babenzin. Ryan, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Doug. So a little background on you, just to to get out. Um, You started as a talent agent um, and then started through that association, working with some brands, I guess, to, to put talent in touch with, with certain brands. Tell us about those days, because that's somewhat adjacent to what a lawyer does. Uh, and so for the segment of our listeners that are uh, in the legal profession, that might be interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was a long time ago. Yep. Um, and it was you know the early days of the internet, actually. And what became clear, it, like, talent was always a brand to me, like developing acting talent was yeah. like building a brand even though I had never built a brand I look that was my filter of how I viewed it yeah and from there I actually you know when I was at ICM I remember pitching an idea we should represent brands right and build like a world around brands and, and pollinate with our talent and there's this internet thing that's going to create this giant pipe of Personal brands. Right. And, and yeah. like, I remember the guys looking at me like, you are fucking crazy. What like, are you? Right. What and they thought it, it yeah. was just really, it didn't resonate back then. Yeah. But then I trans, I was, I became a manager. So I left being an agent and actually became a manager. And that gave me a lot more creative freedom mm-hmm. to do things with clients. And I started consulting brands. Okay. So I was working with some of the streetwear brands of the day. Mecca, Aniche, right. those types of... And they were clients of the firm? Or? They were clients of me. Okay. So they were they were not officially on the client list. But I was consulting on the yeah. side. You know, I was mid-20s or late-20s, hustling just to make more money, frankly. Yeah. And it was a space that I knew really well, so it was fun. Mm-hmm. And there was a need for it because they it was uncharted territory. Yeah. And I remember, you know, they wanted to get like this jersey on Ice Cube, who was about to do this new movie. Yeah. And they were like, we've got to get this Mecca jersey. Can we do it in the colors Just you want? in the public or in some sort of a, he was, he was doing a step and repeat? There was, no, there was a scene in the movie. The movie hadn't ah, even started shooting okay. yet. Okay. And okay. the movie was Fridays. Yeah. And like, he, <laughs> there was this moment where, um, there was a scene where like we felt felt like this would be a great place to get like mecca branding and ultimately the deal didn't work but like that was the way we were thinking about it like how yeah. do we use these vehicles where um youth powered vehicles a lot of music videos as well and get these brands into the the stream of what youth was watching because you know that movie became something and mm-hmm. MTV was something really important it was like the instagram of the day if you will yeah and that's how I was kind of merging those two. Got it. So also Echo and then two more institutional brands, Puma and then K-Swiss. Yeah. I mean, Puma and K-Swiss, I became 
I had left the talent world altogether and yep. I was the head of entertainment marketing at Puma and that was a a legitimate, you know, <laughs> meaningful <laughs> That role. was your real job. That right? was a real job yeah. with, you know, real responsibility and budget and managing a P and L of marketing and and uh, we did really progressive stuff there as well. I mm-hmm. mean taking what I knew from entertainment, understanding who I who I thought was gonna be a meaningful talent and trying to marry them before they became huge. Yeah. And, you know, I, I did a deal at Puma. The first deal I ever did at Puma was with uh, Estelle. Okay. She had a, a record coming out. She wasn't quite there yet. Right. And I did a deal where we, Kristen Siriano, who had won the first year of... of yep. And is still a very relevant, a relevant de- designer so today. Kristen just Probably more so. Yeah. Just given that, like you know, right out. built a career. Yeah. Christian designed anything. He took anything from Puma he wanted from the apparel collection, cut it up and made unique pieces for Estelle. And Estelle did three in-store concerts for free and wore these things. And we got, you know, it was like, how do we create earned media around these things? Yeah, around essentially barter deals, which is such a great way to do it. Because really... I I paid her $10,000. Okay. Sorry, Estelle. (laughs) That was a long time ago. (laughs) So, so... More institutional settings, maybe a little bit more hoops to jump through. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you were given, uh, in a sense, kind of the keys to an, an old tennis brand, Boast. Yeah. Um, maybe describe that, and then um, you know, then we'll get into the good stuff. Yeah, Boast, I really thought I was going to spend the better part of 10 years of my career at that point with Boast and reimagining. Boast is a for lack of a better word, a streetwear brand. Like we were going to take this, what was once a very conservative tennis brand, Mm -hmm. even though it had a maple leaf and it had edge, it was still a tennis brand. And we were going to reimagine it and make it more relevant for youth and streetwear. And I felt like, you know, we had a really good plan on doing that. Sadly, you know, I learned pretty early that the owner of the brand just didn't have uh, the same vision that that they had hired me to execute, mm-hmm. and some other things that like caused me to not stay very long. But what I'm very proud of, uh, you know, Tommy Hilfiger bought that brand. Yeah, and they are, they have rebooted it once again. And as, I as I'm with, sure you know, I met with Tommy. Yeah. about you know eight months ago, and he said, "We're just gonna do what you were gonna do." Like yeah. pretty much, and then he showed me all the collection, and and that was flattering because like, you know, life is about timing, and yeah. I think I could have done something amazing with that brand. We didn't have the right mix of people or partnership, um, but that yeah. was that was a fun learning experience, even though it was a year. So you um, probably have always had an entrepreneurial gene to you, but post boast you then decided I'm going to start my own brand. Yeah. Um, you know, emotionally, sort of financially, how did you come to that determination? Who was in it with you? And uh, what were your first steps? Because we, we have a lot of entrepreneurs and students of entrepreneurism, mm-hmm. uh, entrepreneurial theory. Yeah. Um, and I think that moment is, is a very critical moment that very few people actually execute on a lot go to the diving board some come down midway up the steps <laughs> some walk all the way to the end you jumped in 
I'm a jumper. Yeah. With you know? a double Sukahara. Yeah, I did twist. a triple indie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just just my nature. I'm I have a high tolerance for risk or pain, maybe. Mm-hmm. And the the process was like there was other digitally native brands, D to C at the time as what was the the moniker. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, the model really works for footwear. Um, people have been buying footwear online for a decade more. Zappos was a monster. Right. So there was a familiarity with the customer like, hey, I, I'm okay buying shoes online. But nobody had started a digitally native sneaker or footwear brand at that time. So I thought the category made a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and you'd seen Warby succeed. Right. You'd seen other examples yeah, in Warby other categories. Yeah, Warby had been on the way. Bonobos was doing it. Everlane yeah. was doing it. And I just, I thought the business model was the only model for brands that were going to succeed from that point onward. Because wholesale was waning, if you will, pretty fast. And, yeah. you know, the thing about the wholesale business as it was when it was healthy, <clears throat> you could start a business with very little money. And if you got in that right retail store, let's say Barney's, and they paid you on time, you could mm-hmm. fund your growth without raising a lot of capital. You, you could make things and sell them and keep going. And that was your financing source. Yeah. But once that started to stop, and it really did, you couldn't really build a company through the wholesale channel first. Yeah. You needed another way. Yeah. And digital provided that. Now you needed you still needed capital. You actually needed more, more capital, capital that way. Yeah. And and we raised a little bit of money. And we raised a half so a million. So pre launch you raised money. We raised a half a million okay. dollars pre pre launch in a convertible note mm-hmm. for you for you for you listeners out there if you want to be specific. Today I would you know, I think a safe is what people are using these days. But yeah. but seed funding for brands, by the way, today is not very easy. And uh, we'll talk about the venture stuff later, yep. but but that is how we launched it. And John Buscemi was my co-founder, mm-hmm. and we had been friends, and we we're both in the industry, and and uh, we launched it together. It was very you know raw. We, yeah. we yeah. <laughs> raised this money, and then it was. Well, fun. you bring up an interesting point that usually I bring up in a question, which is the fact that in the traditional model maybe even less so for footwear, but certainly for apparel and some areas of accessories, the barriers to entry were much lower because wholesale accounts would not only finance you, but also in effect promote you because they had so many channels of distribution Mm -hmm. that you were kind of everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, if you were with four big wholesale accounts, you were national, if not gaining international reputation as Mm -hmm. a brand. And season to season, you at least if you were hot enough, could get covered your production costs, and the rest was gravy. Um, Today, you've got to build out that website, but you also have to get the customers to come to it. And that's the real, the customer acquisition cost is is massive, where it wasn't. So I'll, I'll pause you here and sort of ask the further question, do you think it's the barriers to entry are now higher, even though you're closer to the customer, because of the cost of customer acquisition these days, that it's not just a great idea or a snazzy website that's going to draw them in today. Yeah, it's a really good point because <clears throat> when D2C first started, 
you could arbitrage Facebook traffic for pennies, yeah. pennies per customer. Now I know brands that are paying $100 for a customer. You're yeah. literally giving away $100. <laughs> and that may not be a loyal customer. Right. Yeah. So the barrier to entry to start a brand and build a website is low. The cost to operate is high, yeah. like from the get-go. Unless you can have some magic, magic that just happens from a celebrity wearing your stuff exactly. overnight, and or you yourself, correct, are a celebrity. That's right, or, and, you're, and we're seeing that with influencers. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay, well, we'll we'll touch on some of those topics as we go through, but um, <clears throat> I didn't want to break your flow. Yeah, no. In terms of okay, so you decided to do it. What other challenges? I mean, so so now you had to make shoes, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you had to build out a website. Mm-hmm. You had to market it. You had to make shoes. I mean, who did what? What what, what were the special powers we, we that did, the founders we brought were to the, the table? Two, there was just two of us, so we both did everything. everything. <laughs> but I'd say John was managing the factory on a day-to-day basis, and I was doing everything else. Mm-hmm. Like, John didn't come to one fundraising meeting. Right. He, he was like, I was already moving. He was back busy to making trains run on time. He was, he yeah. was out in California <laughs> and we were just dividing and conquering. Yeah. I, you know, I did the site, I worked with the design team. He does he did the shoes. We only had two. Okay. And we made three colors each. But he okay. he built those. And then we launched. Okay. Well, <laughs> so for the one listener perhaps yeah. who is not familiar with the product, um, from a design perspective, from a brand ethos, just tell us about Greats. Yeah, I mean, the thesis was the name Greats is derived from what we thought our design thesis. I mean, it was our thesis was we're going to pick the greatest silhouettes in men's footwear, sneakers, mm-hmm. and work with those. Now, at any given time, there might be three or four in the market, and there might be 12 in total mm-hmm. that come in and out in time. Runner court shoe, high top, but the silhouettes that dominate the space are pretty tried and true. Yeah. It's very rare that anybody invents a silhouette that has never been done before and it becomes a classic. Mm-hmm. Now there are brands that invent silhouettes and they become a very fast trend, but they're very short lived in especially in digital world. Like in today's world, fashion trend is you know, it's on, yeah. it's on, it's light speed. Would you worry if one of your designs came out of the gates smoking hot in terms of its, its long-term viability? I wouldn't say I'd worry, but we weren't hoping for it. Right. Mm-hmm. And look, I'm all for tailwinds. So if you design something and it becomes really hot, great. Just be prepared that that will end one day. And what does that look like? Right. Because if you're raising money on some growth curve that's driven by a hyper trend, yeah. and the hyper trend ends, and it will, and nobody knows if it ends in a week or a year, then reality hits you. And you're not a technology company, nope. so to speak, in terms no. of in terms of the product. And so, therefore, I would posit humankind's been designing for the human foot. Yeah, forever. Exactly. So what are you really going to come out with yeah. that unless it's got a technological element yeah. um, is, is going to be that hot and that lasting? Yeah. Um, okay. So 
a little bit for our listeners just on the size of the footwear industry. Um, by some reports, a $125 billion industry. It's obviously been in the menswear space in particular, a huge growth industry yeah. and a huge source of revenues and traffic for, for retailers. Um, of that, if you agree with $125 billion or, or not, but of that amount, what would you say the percentage of athletic versus casual versus dress shoes would would comprise the overall market? I, I think the casual athletic is like $60 billion, I think, if okay. the last I looked. Wow. And they're blended together. So would that include a loafer? Like a leather loafer, no, or I is it? No, I think that sits in a shoe. Okay. For me, it, at least by okay. definition, it would. Right. By me, for me, I'm not sure how. Loafer is what your lawyer wears. Right. <laughs> well, you're, wearing, you're wearing a double monk today, so I am wearing a that's double a monk. proper shoe, yes. probably bench made in London <laughs> by his guy. Giuseppe, who came over from Italy. Well, this is this is a little where I'm going with it. So, okay, so 60 million is essentially hybrids of tennis shoes, running shoes, but 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 on a casual platform, not intended for performance. Right, non-sport use. Right, right, right. Um, so, give me the other breakdowns of the other, you know, roughly 60. I don't know, actually. Okay. okay. I really don't. Because well, um, you don't play in those spaces. And, well, no, and, it's not like market size. We just. The market's gotten bigger, by the way, since we started greats. Like in the sneaker casual space, that market's grown. Yeah. We just were like, that's a big enough market. Like whatever the number was, like it's big enough <laughs> and we don't know what the actual number is. And you don't know Giuseppe. I do know Giuseppe. <laughs> okay. but my Giuseppe actually still lives in Italy. Okay. But 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 the the bigger point was and and market growth was what I was interested in. I said, look, the casualization of the workplace is gonna continue to drive casual footwear and in order for proper footwear which i would you know like classic shoes leather soled shoes whether they're monks or slip-ons doesn't matter mm -hmm. those shoes will have a harder time at becoming the dominant shoe style again as workplaces remain casual and i haven't seen the reversal of the workplace becoming more formal yeah and as that continues we stay there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it. I mean... You're the only guy I know that wears a suit and tie every day. <laughs> well, and this is what I write about in The Laws of Style. Yeah. I talk about this shift in, in workplace norms yeah. that have also hit law firms and accounting firms and investment Goldman. banks. And yeah, I mean, most firms are casual all week unless you got to go to court yeah. or you've got a big client meeting. Um, that being said, we have seen returns to more conservative uh, dress codes with financial crises. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we may be due for one in, in a year or two. I know, uh, but that's all bullshit. Because, <laughs> okay. because, because the way they dress to, to invoke confidence, <laughs> right? I mean, you re like, that is the reason, right? We all have been taught, I used to wear a suit every day too, right? Yep. Like, your client needs to look at you as a professional. Mm -hmm. And that's it. It's a uniform that represents responsibility and intelligence well and and i'm i'm, I'm gonna give and, you that and, and because i think, I think you, that that is right yeah well and it, it works because there's legacy attached to it correct for sure um but i will say and and i'll speak now just about men because yeah. it's i can't speak with authority about women um and how they present themselves in the workplace i think it's a it's a it's very interesting topic and you know i'll cover it on one of these podcasts but um 
It also has the added benefit, I will say, as a guy who does wear the suit. The suit is a wonderful vehicle for for looking good and hiding bodily flaws and kind of having this this eudaimon kind of mm-hmm. shoulders to to waist ratio and 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 put togetherness that is hard to replicate in more casual clothing unless you yourself are physically fit. 100% agree with you and I would even say it's really hard for a person who doesn't have the suit to actually be seen as a stylish person. Yeah. Because now when you get when you lose this like armor's not the right word, but it it does represent something well. And if you have a decent fitting suit anywhere in the world, you're going to People are going to just take a little notice, right? If you walk in like a slob like me in a (laughs) t-shirt and a pair of pants that... Didn't Pesco do do this show? He has not done it yet. Oh, well, these are from his store. He keeps bouncing around. These are from his store. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, magazine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which, by the way, I said it right. (laughs) You did. But, like, it's harder to be perceived to be stylish when you don't have what is more traditional, like... Yeah. It really you get it you get style points by being together like that. I also feel that for a lot of clients, and again, my clients are all in fashion and retail. Yeah. So I think and and you know my rate. You know, I mean I I'm do. close to a thousand dollars an hour, right? <laughs> so if you're spending on me, yeah, you want to see also, I think that there is almost like a genuflection to the seriousness yeah. of the work. And if you think that I'm being irreverent about that or casual about that or dressing the same way I might if I was lounging poolside, it just would rub you the wrong way. So there, there, are, there are a number of reasons for a service professional yeah. that in particular, you know, like a lawyer who's not necessarily adding to revenue is just hopefully, you know, protecting things and, right. and getting a deal done to, to look the part. Um, so we'll, we'll I under, look I I understand it well <laughs> yeah. and I you know what is the saying like dress for the role you want to be right or, or job the job you, you want right yeah. understood yeah. I just think the world has shifted the world has indeed shifted a lot. that is undeniable there's a saying that I I, I like <laughs> and it comes from the startup land it's like okay. hey the guys in suits look really important until you wear, realize they work for the guys in t-shirts right and like there's billionaire startup guys, not that I'm one of them, but those are the guys that they're talking about. For sure, yeah. thousand percent. And that has become a little bit of a uniform, which yes. kind of looks on some who are faking it, who yeah. you know aren't billionaires, a yeah. little silly. Yeah, honestly. Um, but I, I do think, you know, we communicate a lot about how we present ourselves. And I think, um, again, for a service provider, who is charging, it it definitely makes sense to to make sure you're not ruffling any feathers in that regard. I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, so back to sort of its impact on the market. For sure, dress shoes as a market must be an eroding category. Yeah. Um, while you make casual shoes, you make them very well. Mm-hmm. And you make them in Italy. And mm-hmm. you do that for a reason. Um, do you have any concerns that <clears throat> certain craftsmanship may be leaking away from the system because the grandson of the Zapateria in Spain or the, you know, is no longer drawn to that craft? Yeah, I do. I think, I mean, the, the country that saw it the most was America. Yeah. On every piece of clothing, including shoes. 
And we actually tried to make shoes here in Maine three years ago. And it was frustrating because it wasn't about price. I said, I don't care what this costs. Mm -hmm. Just make me this. I need this. And these guys were great hand sewers who that that's the section of Maine that still exists. Yeah. Like a hand sewn moccasin. Right. And I wanted to do something the the upper was traditional, but the bottom was gonna be a running sole. Okay. And they just couldn't figure out how to marry these two. Wow. Where is that region of Maine? I'm curious. Where is that that section of Maine, where do, where does that expertise reside? It's just outside of. Because uh, I know there's quaddies and yeah, I know so that's yeah. it's that it's just outside of the big city. It, um, not the big Portland. City. Yeah, Portland. Okay, exactly. Okay, yeah. kind of the burbs of Portland, and it was really frustrating to me because I was like, guys, I'm willing to pay the premium, put put this on the map, yeah, and a young new company brand. Like we were, you know, we get a lot of press and awareness, yeah. And they wouldn't more than quaddies. More than quaddies, <laughs> which I know well. I wore them as a kid. Yeah. And they couldn't do it. And I wound up making that shoe in the Dominican Republic. And in one week, by the way, DR has probably the best hand sewers. That's where most of you know Timberland's leather is coming okay. from, and Sperry's boat shoes are made. And the reason they left Maine is because they're more innovative. And they anyway, I had that shoe in a week. Wow. That was like the moment I realized like talent people can talk about our current our current administration talking about bringing jobs back to America. I'm all for it. Except if you're going to compete on the world stage, like there is a skill set that we just don't have at least for this stuff. Yeah. And uh yeah, I worry about it in Italy because I think it's all kind of the talent is older, mm-hmm. and it's it it's could, not being replenished. No, or, like a little, but not in a way that, at some point, it might just die. Yeah, yeah. Now we, at the same time, we haven't really commercialized no hands on a shoe. Like every shoe has hands on it. Yeah, they're touching it. It's very. Well, Rare let's say that a shoe is made from top to bottom. Like the only people that have accomplished that, as, as far as I know, are Adidas, hmm. and they made like you know samples. They're yeah. not like commercializing that yet. Well, to geek out a little bit, yeah. Um, walk us through shoe production. A <clears throat> one of one of your classic, the the Royale. Yeah. Walk us through that production in you know a minute. From start, like before from we designed it, or now that it's in no. The let's assume it's designed, yeah. and you've got. But but walk us through with you know relatively non-technical terms. Yeah. But you can use the word last, and you can use the word yeah. upper, and you know. Well, well, now that that shoe is really one of our best sellers, it is the best seller. The pattern's been made. The lasts have been made, so they've been commercialized. We have hundreds of them, mm-hmm. multiple sizes. So the process now goes faster, and. For us now, it's just about we have this core business around these core colors, and then we update them every quarter, every season, every year, and that's where like the material selection and the color selection gets. That's the art of like what colors are going to matter. Yeah. But from like, to be perfectly honest, like the process now on that shoe is quite simple. Mm-hmm. We're not 
re-engineering it. We did some update on comfort because we felt like we could improve the way it, it felt okay. through an improvement on the insole, but it wasn't a redesign. We just went to Ortholite and picked a, a really great you know, memory foam. Yeah. And so it's, it's not complicated. Yeah. The yeah. complication is in designing it, the sampling it, the developing, and then getting it right. Yeah. Getting it fit right. Once that's done, but I, I'm, I've simplified that, but that's the hard part. Yeah. Well, so you have competitors. I, mm-hmm. I mean, you'd probably list a lot of brands as competitors, but I think for our listeners, you know, maybe, maybe Rothy's or Allbirds, um, Veja. What distinguishes greats from those propositions, whether it's product or the retail experience? Yeah. Well, you know, I don't consider Rothy's or Allbirds a competitor. Okay. Our similarity ends when, like, the digital part. But they're really very unique things. Um, Veja, on the other hand, I would say is a competitor. Mm-hmm. And the founder and I, are, like, I'm, we sat on a panel together. Like, he's a great guy. And his passion. You guys are only splitting $60 billion. Yeah. So, yeah, you <laughs> guys should be for, There's plenty to go around. <laughs> but, um, you know, our position on, the, on what, what, what greats is, is like we make premium quality essentials. We play in fashion, but we're not a fashion brand. We're not going to set the world on fire of developing an, a, a, a silhouette that a fashion house might try to. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do we we provide value in the category of premium, but we will go into other categories of price. I mean, we had we had started in multiple price categories. We scaled that back, but now we're going to go back into it now that we have, you know, the resources that you really need to kind of play in multiple prices, aka customer segmentation. But royal premium quality essential. Yeah. Well. So pivoting a little bit to recent events, uh, you, uh, congratulations on completing a uh, M&A Con- transaction. Congratulations to you. With, with, with my health, <laughs> with, with, with my firm's health, um, with uh, the, the, the brand Steve Madden, uh, the company Steve Madden. Uh, I guess what, what was the logic behind the transaction? Uh, and I know there's a great deal of logic behind it. And, um, you know, after we go through that, let's also talk about the process um, to the extent we can without, you know, broaching any confidentiality uh, of, of just engaging in an M&A transaction. But, but first and foremost, the business logic behind it. So in our life, we realized that, and I, I said this in the very beginning, even though we raised venture capital, that it became pretty clear to me that venture capital and brand doesn't really mix. They're looking for, you know, 10x returns on an entire fund size, which is impossible to do in a fashion play. You need more time. You can do it. You can't do it in the window. Five to seven years. Where the LPs are like trying to exit in their fund. So I learned that very early on. And I was like, okay, venture is going to be probably not, and how many rounds of venture financing had you done? We before done. The we had done two seed rounds, and mm-hmm. then we did a, a bigger round. Ten a, million, a, a little less. Okay. With with uh, 
basically was a private equity shop that functioned like a VC fund. And again, we learned, you know, PE mentality is also very unique and there's a kind of a method. And for a small growing digital brand, probably not. Yeah. Like there's probably a misalignment on how to. So here I was now I'm like, okay, I'm going to go raise my last round. Where am I going to get it? I didn't think either of those buckets were going to made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And I had met Steve in 2016. They asked me to just come over. They were like, hey, we think what you're doing is really amazing. You know, what's your vision? How do you see the world? And we just talked about that. And I really liked him. Him mm-hmm. and Ed Rosenfeld, the CEO. Like Steve, Steve's an entrepreneur. Like he built this thing from zero and... For sure. It's... And similar background in a way, very, I think. Yeah. You know, you guys are simpatico, I think, in that much. way. Like we yeah. have a, a lot of similarities. Yeah. I, I just had dinner with him Monday, and it's like, we like I just like him. Like, we have fun together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, you know, if we're going to, we could raise capital, but capital alone doesn't solve the complexities of our business. It doesn't give us the scale we would get right away. Like, I could hire the greatest people in every role, they're not going to get leverage on supply chain, tanneries, factories, freight rates, logistics, all of the thi- the, the nuts and bolts behind the scene. Yeah. You just got to you just got to grow into them. Yeah, you just got to be bigger. With this, we could plug right in. So, I really start started to think like maybe we should merge and just like we're really good at brand. We can build brand and community and marketing that we're really good at that and you guys are incredible at supply chain and development and production mm-hmm. so what if we partner and that's how that happened great now to the process which yeah. um oh boy <laughs> do you have a <laughs> tissue <laughs> relatively smooth but not without you know the typical there there are always things that come up um you know what was it like working through that process and did you ever feel that with lawyers involved that that sometimes messages or lines got crossed yeah um well one like thank you because you were part of that process on the on the not on the brand side but on the personal side on the ryan side on the ryan side um you know, we had a we had corporate counsel that we had had for years, and they had their corporate counsel, and I think we saw miscommunications at at times when there wasn't a lot, by the way. But what would happen then is like Ed and I would just have a conversation, like yeah. off, like, "Hey, what's what do you want here? What do we want here?" The lawyers can do whatever language they need to do, but what are we trying to fix and and that's how we would get through those. But to be honest, there weren't a lot. Yeah. There weren't in my experience, but they do happen. They're, yeah. they're almost inevitable. Yeah. I mean, it really is, especially with that many chains of, of sort of the, the game of telephone. Mm-hmm. You know, you say cat and what comes out at the end is cup. <laughs> and there's a big difference, right? It's, it's like, like Siri. It's like, no, yeah, that's not what yeah. I meant. Um, <laughs> And then, you know, there are certain, I, I would say most deal lawyers are, are 
can be collaborative. Yeah. I think that's a very important element because it is not it is not the other side. It is it is two sides that are hopefully going to yeah. meet and yeah. merge. Um, but you're an advocate for your client, and so you are sort of, if not jumping at shadows, you're the one that has to look into the dark corners for your client to make sure there's just no boogeyman yeah. in there yeah. because there there quite possibly can be. Yeah. So sometimes with that the first communications of sort of well what am I you're you're proposing hypos or what ifs that are that are undoubtedly more nefarious than what might you know actually happen in practice if you yourself don't know the industry very well and this is where I find there can be a value when you do know the industry in terms of what the reality is because yes in theory with a certain provision that's got a certain wiggle room in it someone who wanted to to fuck you, yeah, yeah, <laughs> might take the position that this reads a certain way, and and therefore I'm going to do that. You have to look at the incentives around what circumstances would they do that in, mm-hmm. and are those addressed elsewhere before kind of alerting the client or maybe even freaking the client out about holes in in the deal, yeah, so to speak. I mean, I think like uh, this process was an educational one for me. Um, as, a, as an agent and manager, I had been on the deal side of things yeah. hundreds of times. And when a studio and an actor want to do a deal, that has to be mutual. Then then there's contract stuff, right? But the deal is not going to be engineered by a lawyer if the sides don't want to make a deal. Yeah, Lawyers don't kill deals. They don't. They shouldn't. They shouldn't. They should. They. They. Sometimes I, they do. I know, but <laughs> but I, you. But you're they. Right. But 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 they shouldn't. You're they right. Shouldn't. When two principles. That's a service now. That's yeah. being now like who wins? Like who benefits? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I look. I haven't been on you know monster M and A deals, so I can understand how they fall apart. Um, but when you have two interested parties that want to do something together, yeah, that's the most important, right? Part of the difficulty as well, I find, you know, even from someone as educated as you are in terms of deal-making process, because not only had you performed as an agent sort of with smaller but no less important deals for individuals and and studios and, um, you know, media content, but your rounds of financing. I mean, you know, you'd you'd seen the process. But a change of control transaction, you know, an M&A transaction, it is kind of brain surgery insofar as you're doing a deal, but all the neurons need to line up afterwards. And there's so much risk associated with a living, breathing thing like a business that for the non-initiated, it's kind of like, why is this taking so long? Yeah. Why are there so many issues? Well, you know, if, if, if Steve's taken over, you know, some of your employees, yeah. well, what's been going on with those employees? How have they been documented? Are they exempt, non-exempt? Oh, how has he treated them? Well, you know, there just, they're just are a lot of things. I'm, that, I'm you know, having flashbacks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there was nothing about employees. No, uh, but because what's interesting is we're in this now three weeks from, like, close, closing. Yep. So now there's, like, a whole other sequence of, like, Getting on integration systems and yes, payments yeah. and yeah. process and taking our kind of ERP and shifting like it is, it's yeah. There's we're doing more work now than we've ever done <laughs> as a brand. Just getting ready to continue to grow. 
because we we're going to take on and but 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 I knew that right. That's kind of what what like in order to get access to all that stuff, we have to be on the same literally like same system. Yeah, from an accounting standpoint, you know, payables, receivables, uh, how we place orders with the factory. That all has to mesh, and yeah. that's work. Yeah. Well, that's in a way the brain surgery involved in, in the deal itself yeah. uh, in some ways, but all really compressed time-wise. Yeah. Um, so again, congrats. Fantastic. You know, looking forward to, to seeing what you can achieve next. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, you know, we talked about how you named greats. Um, and by the way, it's got such legs in terms of, you know, beyond just footwear, right? Greats is just a fantastic name. It's one of those, you know, I'm sure a lot of other people just hit their head like, what? Yeah. yeah they, everybody's like, how yeah. did you do that? Yeah. I mean, look, it's, we think there's a lot of elasticity to the word, yeah. its applications, how we use it, for categories, for sure. You didn't name the brand after yourself. No. Was there any desire to do that? I mean, you Never. came from a different background. Never. Yeah. Actually, John and I split as partners almost immediately. Not okay. from any bad blood, just life. Mm -hmm. And we still we're still very close. John was meant to be the face of the brand because okay. you know John's a colorful guy and like yeah. well known and loves like loves that role. I was just meant to be the guy that ran it. Yeah. And so no. We never the thought for me the thought of my name being on it never even never even crossed my mind. I like. Have you ever had conversations with Steve about you know his name being on his no, brand but, or no? But it's good. I will yeah. actually because you know you give up. I want to. I like an and not being anonymous. I truly do. Now you would not know that by the things I've had to do <laughs> to become the front of the brand. Like I talk about the brand. I go on stage when yeah. asked. I'll do. Things. You'll do podcasts. I'll do podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> and I would have done business podcasts no matter what. But no, my, my desire to this day is not to be recognized. Mm -hmm. I don't mind if people know I'm the guy that started Greats and built a brand. I don't really want to be that's him, like being able to see me. Yeah. I, I'm not crazy yeah. about that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. And, and, and <clears throat> you know, you, you should chat with Steve about it. And, you know, there are no short Stuart Weitzman. I mean, the yeah. list could go on and on. Jimmy sure. Chu. I mean, it, and and for a lot of designers, I think what's behind that is some some sense of, of just the authenticity of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm putting my name on this product. Uh, but what comes with it, and and you've now lived it, you know, in the context of of a sale of the business mm -hmm. or rounds of financing, you're giving up control to a certain degree over over your own legacy, yeah. um, which is very fraught with issues. Yeah, so which all I never thought of it that way. Right. But I'm glad, like now I know what that really means. Yeah. Because I have friends that have done things after their name, and they really don't even own their name. Yeah. They they just like they can have it on their license, you know. It's that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I often ask a fairly hackneyed question, you know, what's the difference to you between fashion and style? But I think more focused on on footwear, what's the difference to you between a product which you know has a fashion moment? And one that it sounds like you strive for through greats that has some lasting style. 
I would summarize it by saying the classic is mm-hmm. where the longevity comes from. And is that, I mean, is that a way of saying it kind of looks like a lot of other things? Yeah, like what's, uh, what I makes a classic? A, I think that's the same for a white t-shirt. Mm-hmm. How many brands make a white t-shirt? Right. Thousands. How many brands make a pair of jeans? How many brands make a penny loafer? How many brands make a double monk? Or, okay. Got to get my devil monk into the show here. It's really good stuff. <laughs> what are, you, what are, are they, they bench <laughs> No, they're not bent. They're, okay. they're uh, two-boot the, New York. Off the shelf? Off the shelf. Whew. Yeah. You better ch- You know, I'm, you better I'm, a true, I'm a true 11, so it's just, it's a very... But my point is, like, I think that's the world mm-hmm. where a white button-down, like a white popping button-down. So what? then you get into the... Those are the classics. They're the tried and true. They're always going to be there. Mm-hmm. And that's the royal for us. And then every once in a while, you might wear a printed shirt. Not at work. Never at work. <laughs> but that's the fashion version of Doug. Right. The classics last. And they survive trend. And they're generally what's used for people with style. Fashion does not make you stylish. Mm-hmm. You can have the latest fashion on, whatever it is, but you could still like a, look like a fucking buffoon. And many times they do. Yeah. It, yeah. There's, a, there's a lack of comfort. You can see it. Yeah. But they're trending and they're like, they bought that thing. And most of the time I look at people that are like minimal in their styling, rooted in the classics, and just pull it off like they're just they're, to me they're just more stylish yeah it's, but style is really personal so. it, it is a it is a personal question i mean i think you know it's important to be framed you don't want someone to remember the clothes in my case the suit i want them to remember me and they will but if because the suit over really carry this well well and i i not that we're talking about me but i try not to overpower it either mm-hmm. It, it, it should be muted because I think you hit on it. I mean, it's, it's almost arresting enough to see somebody in a suit, at least at a lot of the places that, that we find ourselves. You know, I mean, our offices are here on Bryant Park. Yeah. We're not at 52nd and Park. You know, there still are these bastions of, of you know, white collar world where, where yeah. this is not uncommon. Yeah. But focusing on the fashion industry, it is pretty uncommon to dress this way. I will say like Tommy. Tommy's always in a blue blazer. Yeah. You know? And, and he and, crushes it. And he owns it. He owns yeah. it. Yeah. 90 degrees out. Yeah. Still looks great. But <laughs> that's his style. Yeah. Right? So, like, it would almost be weird if you didn't see him in it. Right. Well, so... And, and a blue blazer is not in fashion. No. So that's the thing. Like, he looks so good in 1990, 2000, 2010, 2019... In basically the same outfit. Yeah. yeah. That style. Well, so I will ask, I don't know if I warned you or not, but um, for our listeners who are just listening to the download, what are you wearing today? And to the extent, and I want accessories, I want the whole ensemble. And to the extent you know what season it is, tell me what season it yeah. is. Okay. So I'm wearing an unreleased pair of greats. Those things are with a awesome. uh, like hand painted floral canvas that I designed in 2016. Okay, it, it reads a little. It's like Hawaiian kind of, but also looks yeah. a little like wallpaper. Right. 
Yeah. And it's just a beautiful canvas print I found in Italy that will... Spoke to you. I'll bring this out next year. Okay. So we were a little <laughs> early. The pants, I can't remember the name, but they're a carrot cut. Well, if they were in Magazon, they're, they're probably obscure. They are. Um, they're obscure, well-selected <laughs> from Europe. Okay. Personally, Josh was like, you and need sort to- of cropped. You like to wear, yeah. you like to show I do, ankle. I do like to wear a crop pant. Yeah. Um, the T-shirt is from an artist named Josh Vides. Okay. Who's really become quite famous, actually. He does these amazing black and white rooms. Started with rooms, okay. and this is this pocket is all hand painted. And he paints what, like the furniture in the room, but all everything's the walls? black I, and white I'm... in the room. Yeah. So imagine this is just painted black and right, white, and right. now he's doing it on everything. He's become so. This shirt, yeah. I should probably not wear it anymore. I should probably just like put it away. Well, but but that's not my style either. Yeah, I your wear style things. is to wear those things that others might collect. And. I've I've got a few pieces of art from him, and okay. that's the T-shirt, and the, I'm wearing a, a Rolex Daytona. Okay, okay. That I've had for twelve years, and I don't change my watches. I have watches, but I'll wear one for like a year. Got it. And then I'll. Go Do you have one of those cases that that I winds don't, the but automatic I need one. ones? Yeah, I know. I because I, I have. I, I don't need one, but I should. You know, a little mini one. Yeah, we, I yeah. only need like a fiver. Yeah, I would. But yeah, our an automatic watch should be rotated and keeping right. gears and oil. Right. Or uh, just put it on your dog. But mine just sits in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put it on your dog. Put it on your dog. Just as a collar. Oh, right. Uh, so that's what I'm wearing. Okay. And and the why? I mean, so you knew you, you probably had a full day. We're at the afternoon. Were there any meetings other than the podcast that, you know, or did you, are you one of those guys that sort of grab it and go? I had a full day of meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them with like some of the team at Madden. Mm-hmm. Some of them in my office. I this is how I dress in the summer. Yeah, I really do. We're wear, right at that transition. Today is rather warm, but we're yeah. almost fall. We're but just yesterday about yesterday. I wore you know a long sleeve button down. Mm-hmm. And jeans, mm-hmm. but my my style is pretty consistent for like most of my life, and it's rooted in my yeah. You know, just well, no, look, you're you're you know, and I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. I mean, you're a guy with style. It's oh, th- it's thank you. Yeah, no, but you are like just because you really you have a consistency. So I have a style question for you. I struggle when wearing tailored clothing, wearing sneakers casual sneakers with it how do you advise guys who are gonna wear a suit or a sport coat to wear greats or you know if they're but but to wear greats with that kind of an ensemble well and and i'm not saying this because it's my brand and the royal is the number one seller right the royal is a suit wearing sneaker not in white don't wear white. Right. White just reads athletic yeah. all the time. Yeah. But we do a... Well, co- plus, what belt do you wear with white? Ex- yeah. Exactly. But we do a black. We right. do an all black, meaning the sole is black as well. We do a gray. We do a cuyo, which is like a tan, which basically could, could read like a tan loafer. Mm-hmm. And if you pick one of those colors, 
just wear just, just wear it the wear way like, you would like wear. A black royal would wear like a black shoe, mm-hmm. and you might not feel comfortable with it. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, well, and that's the reason I don't do it. Yeah, because to me, part of part of my <clears throat> personal style is to be comfortable, not necessarily comfortable from a objective standpoint of oh, he's in sweats, but comfortable that I am dressed for the day mm-hmm. and back to that how should a lawyer dress you know an athletic soul on a shoe to me is not you know i'm not i'm not going to be getting rebounds for you <laughs> i'm going to be closing your deal right so but but when you say athletic soul like the royal is not i would not consider it an yeah. athletic soul it's a technically it's a cup soul right it's it's got one Thing, like one height, one yep. silhouette. Athletic soles have lots of technical shit in there with True. different cushioning pods and areas. And there's usually a running shoe thicker in the back and smaller in the front. And so are basketball shoes now. Right. Like they have a fatter back. And ours is flat. So it's 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 a total. I wouldn't consider it an athletic sole. Yeah. No, this is this is my thing to get over if I ever get over it, yeah. and I may never, and that's that's and perfectly that's okay. fine. And that's, that's okay. okay. Um, I mean, I'm getting married in a pair of grades. When are you getting married? When's the- uh, September 26th. Congratulations. Thank you. And where is that happening? That's going to be in Brooklyn. I'm not going to say the venue because okay. maybe somebody will come and yeah, throw come things and at us, or who knows? <laughs> the uh, pop. The pop. But, but the we made a pair of shoes for Kevin Durant. Okay. He wanted. Um, How stoked are you that he's that a Brooklyn Net? That was yeah. sick, right? Yeah. Now this is years ago now, but like he wanted baby crocodile. Okay. So <laughs> we sourced the Hermes. There's a segment of our listeners who are right now screeching. And That's okay. Like... <laughs> Sorry. The customer's always right. 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 No. So fair we sourced. Enough. We sourced the supplier for Hermes. And we bought this, the, the the skin, and there was his feet are huge. He's an eighteen, so we had to buy two of them. And there was enough leftover to make my own pair. Wow! So I made a pair of black. They're just they're super super beautiful. Like yeah. like if you if when, when Ralph makes a gator thing, yeah. this is that except oh, wow. on my sneaker. It's you really know, there's a designer we also represent, Jason Stalbay. You yeah. familiar with yeah. his alligator bags? Yeah. yeah, they're they're sort of similarly, just absolutely decadent. And it's super elegant. Like it's just clean. Tux. I'm wearing a tux. Yes. Okay. And and who makes the tux? Actually, this is funny because it's not like a big fancy <laughs> thing. Like I was gonna go buy a Tom Ford one. And I was like, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I bought us tux last year from from Bonobos. But I, I've but, got I've got two tuxes from Bonobos, and then they I wear went pretty well. It, then I went and had it like completely engineered. I yeah. mean, I took it to my guy, and I'm like, I want this to fit, like you made it, like off the you know, yeah. like, totally custom. And it's like I feel like fucking James Bond. So yeah. I'm like, I'm not buying another Done. tux. Done. Like yeah. I love this tux. Yeah, mine are more. You know, I've got sort of a very Christmassy one, which is sort of like you yeah. know the green black plaid. Um, and then one is white, which, yeah. you know, um, don't always have occasion to wear that. But, uh, well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, big year for you, for sure. So 
I'll, I'll, I'll deep dive now into maybe, you know, apropos of the, the crocodile skins and sustainability <laughs> means different things to yes. different people. But what does, put, putting that aside for the moment, what, what does greats view as its responsibility with respect to, I'll say, environmental sustainability? Yeah. Um, and for the record, I don't think that necessarily, you know, a few baby crocodiles losing their lives for a pair of shoes is not environmentally sustainable. Right. Talking four more, years ago. <laughs> <laughs> talking more long term. Uh, you know, in terms of landfill, in terms of, you know, uh, just just product and, and, and its life and, and how long things last. Yeah. Well, I think that you're touching on it already. I think the first rule of responsibility or sustainability, I even struggle with the word. Well, we it make, means it's, we it's, make it's, stuff. It's, it's a meaningless term these days right. because people in the industry use it to mean labor practices. Yep. They, 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 they mean environmental sustainability in some states. Some business people hear sustainable and think you're just profitable. Right. You know, but right. but what I'm speaking to, you're hearing loud and clear, which is just, you know, it's environmental impact. Yeah. So the first thing that's most important is, is how long does the thing last? Mm-hmm. Make a thing that lasts a long time and you have a high degree of sustainability because you're not having to buy it every six months. Yep. It will last for years. That's a sustainable practice. Then the second le- thing is like, what is it made out of? Well, leather gets a bad rap. It's like people are saying that, you know, cows, cows are polluting the environment. Mm-hmm. Those cows are also grown for food. So without that food, the the food supply in the world is going to be challenged. And that's not going to, I just don't see that changing fast. So, there, like, you know, there are, there are conflicting gr- views on that for but sure. While, but while that cow is being grown for food, yeah, yeah. let's use all of it. Yeah. And leather is the byproduct of that. Mm-hmm. And that also could be argued as a sustainable practice. I understand raising cattle and, the, and its impact on the environment, but I'm not in the cattle business. Like, mm-hmm. if they stop using it, You'll come up with a plant-based solution. And, or, and we're looking at those already. Yeah. They, those exist already. But we're not quite like, I'm, I'm just not convinced or ready to say leather should be banned from the world. I just mm-hmm. don't know. I just, I'm not what, sure. That. What plant-based solutions have you looked at? And I'm not saying to replace or replicate the entire line, but, yeah. but have you dipped your toe in that customer-facing so, so or is it still there's to come? Some, like, it's called plant pineapple leather mm-hmm. it's yep. basically like le- le- they're making it's not leather but it's yeah no i'm from i mean we yeah. represent stella mccartney okay she you uses know, it she uses it and we looked at that and we like it and we might use that um where you know we did the recycled knit from from plastics mm-hmm. and we'll continue to do that do that we're putting um we're at twenty percent now in recycled rubber in our sole, but we want to elevate that number to get as close to a hundred as we can. Mm-hmm. We're using um, recycled uh, insoles. They're like Ortholite is taking yep. you know all the soles, chopping them up, and then remaking them. Yep. So we are doing. We we really just started doing this about a year ago, and it's our job to continue to do more. But I don't have. Um, I, I'm never going to be comfortable saying we're a sustainable company in terms of environment because we make stuff. Yeah. And making yeah. stuff has some impact on the environment. Yeah. I think our the best we can do will be to be as responsible as we can. 
um, and make the things that leave the least amount of impact for what people are are, yeah. are wanting, by the way. Like, you can't force the general customer to buy something they don't want. Yeah. The faster they get more sustainable, we'll be yeah, right there yeah. with them. Well, it's a broader policy discussion, of Correct. course. You know, I mean, you can tax new things more than, than old things. There, right. there definitely are brands that are looking into sort of recycling their own products. Um, you know, because nothing, few things last forever. Yeah. Um, and, you know, few things take as much of a beating as shoes. Let's face it. They're, they're the one thing that's in direct contact with yeah, us and the planet. Yeah. You know, um, and just the normal wear and tear is wear and tear. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's, it's clearly something that, that, that a, a large segment of, of your customer base and, and all customer bases care about. But to date, it really doesn't have – there's no regime that one can point to or certification process yet that is sort of globally acceptable where you could say we are certified by this particular nonprofit organization and therefore that means our practices are are clean in this number of ways. Right. And I think part of that for the industry is the production of of everything is so disparate, you know. I mean, I don't know how many different factories you use to say produce the Royale, but for apparel because there are so many different elements to, to every garment, right. you may use eight different facilities to, to make one suit. Right. And it's very difficult to impose your regime on them from a, a production standpoint, or even enforce it, unless you're massive and are willing to send a representative there. All the, you know. and, and, and this is happening. It is, it is happening. Zara's doing it. Adidas is doing it. We're, like, the big guys are doing it and demanding things, so that's great yeah and we're we can't demand that but we're looking for the places we can go which we do mm-hmm. that are already doing it or provide that level of of um sustainability responsibility mm-hmm. you talked about before though labor you know you know ethical treatment of of, of workers is, is mission critical for me personally yeah. and i can say proudly that the factories we we use have you know some of the best working environments I've ever seen in a factory. Mm-hmm. And we'll continue to do that even if we make product back in Asia, which we probably will. Yeah. We're probably going to make some styles that just belong to be made in Asia from a, you know, Italy's good at some things. They're not good at like others. They just can't yeah. make everything. They don't yeah. have the machines. The world's the learning that, yeah. I feel, you yeah. know. Um, and, and that's a good thing. Uh, just in terms of general globalization and, and you know, workers' rights globally. Because yeah. I think, um, you know, for a long time, Asia's just been associated with cheap labor. Yeah. But as you know, it's it's not all cheap in Asia. No, there's Nor factories that, that have, you know, they're less in America, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, for, the, for, for, for China, they're well-paid. Yeah. Um, and I think they should all be well-paid. Yeah. I really do. Like, I, that... I have a funny story. We made we used to make stuff in Asia. About thirty percent of our business was Asia. Styles were fifty nine to eighty nine bucks. And I went once and I sat down with the factory owner. I'm like, hey, look, I would like to buy lunch every time our stuff is on the line. Like, I want to kind of have a group of people that work on the great stuff that we can we can lower the quality control failure, right? Yep. If they're more focused on it 
we can we can you you will save waste. Right. They'll feel better, and I want to buy them lunch. Yeah. And he translated back. He's like, well. If you're willing to do that, just give me the money and I'll make him work hard. <laughs> I swear to God. Right. And it freaked me out because he was missing the point. Like uh, the factory owner doesn't need to make more money. Yeah. The employees need to be treated better. And I left that factory. Well, that's one of the great benefits of, of being an entrepreneur, starting your own business yeah. and being able to make those kinds of decisions. Um, Pivoting back to influencers. Yes. Um, and our, our mutual friend and, and client of this firm, Nick Wooster, he was one of the first, uh, maybe not one of the first, but I remember doing the deal yep. opposite you guys. Yep. Thank God for conflict waivers. Um, <laughs> to you know do his, his capsule collection with you. What do you think about the rise of the influencer as, as a marketing component of brand? And um, you know, what do you think it messages to consumers? You know, influencers have become the celebrity of the day. That doesn't make them good designers. And Nick's, Nick, Nick is, I'm not talking about Nick. Nick yep. is actually really talented at, at, but he's also worked in the industry before right. he became right. an influencer. Well, and this was ages ago, right. really, at this point. Right. I mean, he was, uh, it was early days. But, but, but like, there's influencers now that are building brands, but they're not designers. And that's okay. But they're selling lots of stuff. And I, you know, it's a really interesting time. It's a transitional time, and um, I think they matter. I think they're going to continue to matter. The days of kind of the actor, musician only, or sports star are gone. Those people still matter too, but there's this new influencers like a catch-all. Yeah, it's better if you're like have a skill, like right. having a million followers because you show your ass is probably not like really an influencer right but having a million followers and taking beautiful photos or or making cakes or cooking like whatever there's a skill associated yeah. with the the audience that's when you can make 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 something of it yeah yeah, yeah. no I, I think you know there is a there is a degree of influencer that really they're just good at curating their right. their feeds right um, but most of them do have some skill or some. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know that. <laughs> By most, I mean more than fifty percent. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> okay. If you say so. But um, you know, and I also probably lump into that people who you in in you know in your way back agency days would have called the talent. You yeah. know, in a way, a Kevin Durant is an influencer yeah. as well as an athlete. Yeah. You know, but he's he's moving the needle outside of just the court. Right. Yeah, and what moved. really changed is technology. There was a yeah. platform now for these guys to talk all the time, yeah. show what they want to talk about, whether, you know, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, whatever their channel is. Before those channels, you couldn't monetize the way you can today, right? Yeah. You yeah. did a big TV deal, you did a car deal, a liquor deal, a shoe deal, and that ran on TV and in, 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 uh, print. Today, you can do a deal like that for a day. Right. A million dollars, one post. Yeah. And that platform empowered them to do that. So that's really interesting. It also gave an opportunity for more people to do it. For sure. And, um, you know, I think the, wor the, the, 
the sway that that mega influencers like that have is is perhaps dissipating a little bit because mm-hmm. the engagement if you have millions of followers is just it's got to be i mean you 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 just can't write them all thank you notes right i have seen again more emerging brands but but focused brands use what we term micro influencers mm-hmm. which really just means they you know have below a million followers yeah. usually below 100,000 but yeah. they have proven engagement with a core consumer group and you know we see a lot of fashion propositions that are built around whether it's it's road biking or or deep sea fishing or you know just the perfect leather flip-flop right um and they can really hit a very very focused market outreach by by you know curating who they go through so i do think you know Oddly, we're back to agency, but I think some of the agencies that are popping up to manage the accounts of even micro influencers, you know, may have may have a real future. Yeah, and ultimately it is about engagement because like a million followers is not impressive when there's really low engagement, right? right. You need people to have it's got to have e- efficacy to kind of talk about like, hey, I discovered this brand through this woman and or man that I really really like, and I engage in it. Yeah. It's not just like I follow it. Yeah. Um, and that's being smoked out. It continues to. It is. And it, you know, it will. And Feeds that look like catalogs yeah. are catalogs. Exactly. You know, so, yeah. Give me real. But there's real. a business there. like, a, and, a, and it's a meaningful one, and I think it'll continue. And, and as far as now embedded, you know, within Stephen Madden, is there is there a pivot or change to the great story? Um, or is it going to remain the same and, and, you know, kind of have that uh, mission statement that you, you had? Yeah, the mission isn't, isn't changing. This, the, the brand isn't changing. What's changing is we now have resources to do more than this, mm-hmm. right? Like we built the business on, on a, basically on one silhouette, but I want more. Like it wasn't like I only wanted to do that. You just... When you're allocating resources, <laughs> I'll make you one dress shoe. All right. I made a hiking boot. It's not an alligator. I made a hiking boot. <laughs> okay. It was great. Was it a one? Was it a, a full style? Two full? two seasons worth. Okay. Made yeah. in made in Italy, Vibram sole. Well, you'll get more at bats with things like that, yeah. undoubtedly, yeah. which will be great, and I think will be great, you know, really for for consumers. Yeah. For I mean, world. look, we're we're gonna we're gonna add some silhouettes to the to collection and. And maybe even dip in some other stuff, uh, you know, here and there. But we have a big opportunity ahead of us with footwear. For sure. Well, Ryan, our time's up. That's a wrap. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. Uh, for your troubles, you'll get a copy of The Laws of Style, which I think you may have one I already. don't. Okay. Well, read the footwear section with great, great interest. Thank you. Give me notes back. Um, and you, our listeners, can get a copy of The Laws of Style by uh, searching on Amazon, Laws of Style, Sartorial Excellence for the Professional Gentleman, or go to my publisher, the American Bar Association's website, where you can purchase it as well. Ryan, any any last shout outs? I mean, I know people know where to go for your product, but um, you know, any any capsules you're doing or other um, you know pro bono elements to. I, you know, well, look, if uh, for those of you who don't know, it's greats.com. Um, pro bono work, yeah. Look, anybody that has an interest in starting a business, 
hit me up on Instagram. Hit me up. Email me. Actually, I don't know if email is a good idea. <laughs> Find me on Instagram. There you go. And, and shoot me a direct message. Because I really do like to... You do give back. Give, You're, give you, guidance you, you've and, and provided give mentor. We didn't get into any of that, but um, maybe maybe round two. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's that's always great, and I think uh, people have a lot to learn. Hopefully, uh, this episode got some of those points out. And thanks again for coming in. Thank you. All right. Bye now. You've been listening to the Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www hballp.com and you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at at hand of the law thank you for tuning in and stay stylish <laughs>